Well, as they go around, you might like to turn to Romans chapter 12. And in my Bible, it's on page 1139. I doubt that's much use to you. But Romans chapter 12. Um, as you're turning there, are there some spares? And is it okay if I speak from the NIV? Is that all right? Oh, good. That's a bit of luck. Um, as you're turning there, I, it's so nice to be with you for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, Simon was very helpful to me when I was a student many a long time ago, um, uh, um, far away. Um, and um, it's just really nice to reconnect. But also, I pray for you guys because my um, most weeks, because my sister um, lives just down the road from most of you. And um, she and her family, I don't think, know Jesus yet. And I would love her too. And I figure you're my best chance. Because <laughs> she certainly isn't going to want to listen to her little brother. So, um, so she has, yeah. Yeah, I'll pray on. Yeah, it's a little nudge to you all. Okay, now, Romans chapter 12. Let me read the first two verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect Will. Now, the issue before us in Romans chapter 12 is an intensely practical one. It's how can I worship God with all of my life? How can I make everything that I do about pleasing him and bringing him glory? Now, I don't want to assume that everyone here will want to worship God like that. In fact, Romans is perfectly clear that none of us do. Not naturally, anyway. Chapter 1 says that there is a perverse instinct right across humanity, to turn away from glorifying God and giving him thanks, and instead to live for the things that he's made rather than for the maker himself. The things we turn to are as varied as his good creation. So some people have their hearts gripped by their family, others by pleasure, others by power. Some locate their ultimate happiness and how their career progresses, others and how their kids get on. There are all these different ideas about what life is about, what success is about. And the way we tend to arrive at our own is a mixture probably of the particular culture we live in, the family we grew up in, and also our own peculiarly perverse hearts. Someone has said that the human heart is a factory of idols. That's to say... Day after day after day, we just churn out new ideas of things to live for that will hook our hearts. What might that be for me right now? I'm always tended day by day to turn to things other than God. Well, I might ask myself, what is that thing that I reckon if I've got it, then I'm made? But if I weren't to have it, life is barely worth living. Or I might reflect on where I go in my solitude. We all get at least a few minutes every day where we think we're not going to be interrupted by anybody else, what do we do with those minutes? What for us is, is escape there, salvation there? Uh, I might look at my spending. We all have at least some money uh, to spend on things we think we absolutely have to, but others really don't <laughs> think we have to. Where does that disposable income go? Or I might consider what I want for my kids. 
So I've got three who are seven, five, and four. I reckon I'm actually doing quite well in a day if I get 10 minutes with each of them on their own. If I have that, what do I spend it on? What do I think they most need that I can do to set them up for life? The assumption of the book of Romans is that all of us will have slightly different answers to those questions. But for none of us, naturally, will the answer be God. If you notice that, therefore, in yourself tonight, that's okay. You're in very good company. But you know what? It does matter. This tendency that the Bible calls idolatry is awfully serious. For a start, whenever we take a good thing and make it ultimate, so instead of getting some comfort from it, we try to get the comfort from it. Instead of getting some help from it, we try to get all our help from it. Some salvation, all salvation, etc. When we make a good thing ultimate, inevitably we break it because it simply wasn't designed to carry that kind of load. For a second thing, I mean, just on that, though, you know, we know this, don't we? I take it. The mum who makes an idol of the perfect family Easter inevitably ruins Easter. The father who lives through his son invariably screws up his son for life. We see this across the board, don't we? A second problem with idolatry is that it does something nasty to us. Romans chapter 1 teaches that it tends to corrupt us. It makes us smaller, hungrier, angrier, deeply restless. You see, there is a kind of natural law that we become like the God that we worship. So if that God is the true and living God who is infinitely loving, infinitely uh, gracious, unfathomably wise, beautifully self-controlled, and so on and so on and so on and so on, well, that is very good news for us. But if my God is something smaller, in fact just a creature, then as I worship it, I will myself just shrink down and down and down into so much less than God made me to be. The third problem is the biggest of all. In fact, it's at the root of the others, which is the true and living God who made me, longs to be all these things to me, wants to be a fountain of life to me, And so as I turn and and dig leaky wells, left, right, and center, when the water's flowing from him, rightly, understandably, he's very angry. And in fact, that is why he gives me over to ruining things I worship and being ruined by them. And his just anger will continue to be expressed and experienced eternally. That none of us naturally feels like worshipping God is a really big problem. But God has had mercy. And this is really what the whole of Romans up to chapter 12, verse 1, has so far been about. And perhaps you know this already. For anyone who tentatively trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has had mercy on us in the most spectacular and wonderful ways. These are the the three biggest things I'm going to share with you that God could ever do for a human being. Forget winning the lottery. Forget being, I don't know, cured of cancer. And by the way, if you're experiencing cancer at the moment, I imagine that's a pretty big deal. This is bigger than that. These are the three biggest things that God could ever do for a human being this side of Jesus' return. And, and, And he's actually done them for anyone who trusts in Jesus. For one thing, and Paul talks about this in chapters 1 to 4, God has changed his view of us. 
What we deserve is for him to be angry with us, but God has found a way through the cross of Christ to forgive us and love us and look on us with pure delight so that even though our praise of him is so very inconsistent, through the atoning sacrifice that he has offered of Jesus on the cross in our place, he now praises us as those who live perfect lives of worship of him because it is now Jesus' life that is presented to him instead of ours. So God has changed his view of us. The second greatest gift, and Paul talks about this in chapters 5 to 8 of Romans, is that God has changed our view of him. If what comes naturally to a human being is to distrust him and turn to other things and to displease him, what God has done by his spirit for all who come to Christ is to plant deep within us a new instinct that this time does trust and love and thank and want to please the true and living God. Now, as yet, it's not the only instinct at play in our lives. But now that we have been born again and his spirit lives within us, it is the deepest and most fundamental instinct at play in our lives. And in the end, it is the one that will win out. So the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is this, that if I'm a Christian, then the real me does want to worship God. I may do a terrible job of it, but it is what I want for his sake. And I have that instinct simply by his grace, because by his spirit, he is helping me to turn to him as my father. So here's the mercy of God. First, to change his view of me. Secondly, to change my view of him. And then if we are believers, God has done a third miracle of mercy in us, which is to change our view of the world. And so to grasp what God is up to in this world, that we find our place in it. This is what chapters 9 to 11 are about. They recognize a tendency in each of us, even as Christians, to reduce our Christian faith to just little me and my little God who helps little me in the day-to-day little things that little me is worried about. And what those chapters do so wonderfully is to expand our horizons right out to what the sovereign God is doing through the ages to gather a people to himself, billions of people, under his son to worship him forever and ever and ever. And I have a role in that and you have a role in that and that is now the new meaning of our lives. And so having laid out these three wonderfully gracious things that God has done that are the very saving of us, chapter 11 ends most fittingly, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so do you see the power of this? That as Romans rehearses the gospel to us, it gets us to the point where we want to say, Even on a Friday evening at like 9.45 at night, having schlepped our way out to Letton Hall, it gets us to the point where we want to say, Amen, I do want to give God glory. I do want to place myself within his cosmic purposes for the world. For he has rescued me 
to live that life. You know, there's even more grace in chapter 12, verse 1. For how can I worship this awesome God? I can even worship him with my body, this troublesome body created and formed by God, but that for so long has been used by me as an instrument of impurity and ever-increasing wickedness that works so imperfectly day to day, wanting the wrong things, tempting me to the wrong things, bearing the scars of long ingrained sin, so much so that I am inclined to cry out, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Yes, this body can, by God's grace, be useful to bring him glory. So Paul writes in the light of all this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, I understand, of praise, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. And the question is, how? Now, are you ready to hear just the beginnings of an answer this evening in two minutes? Really, the weekend is going to be about the answer to that question as we work through chapter 12. Tonight, let me just give you the answer at its very most general If I want to please God, I need my mind renewed. Verse 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying, if we want to live for God in every area of life, then we've got to learn to think like God in every area of life. We've got to learn to value what he does and not value what he doesn't. We've got to learn to see as problems what he sees as big problems. And conversely, we've got to learn to not see as problems things he doesn't really see as problems. We've got to approach things from his angle. That's how we'll live in line with his good, pleasing and perfect will. It's by knowing his will, by having our minds renewed. So I want to be very plain with you what my agenda is for these talks. It's not to offer advice or even to issue commands. I'm not sure I will be issuing any. It's to do something actually much more fundamental. It's to get you to reassess how you view yourself. In particular, how you view yourself in relation to the rest of your church family here. And if we're going to get really granular, it's to get you to reassess how you view yourself in relation to the rest of the church family. As that church family lives in a culture that doesn't understand them. Everything I'm on about is at the level not so much of what you will do as the way you will think. It's a kind of reprogramming insofar as you need it. Maybe you don't need it at all. I wonder how that makes you feel. I think it would be natural for us to feel a bit nervous about me speaking that way. What is this, some kind of brainwashing? Is this a kind of re-education on the level of a cultural revolution? And what about this offering our lives 100% to God? Perhaps we worry he is so big, his word is so authoritative that it would 
crush us. It would crush our personality and individuality so that we'd all become clones of each other, all being taught to think the same way as one another as our minds are renewed. But look again at verse 2 and ask yourself, who is it that does the conforming of us and who the transforming? I want to suggest that it's not God who has a problem with individuality, it's we humans who do. This has often been said by people, that when human beings freeze water, what do we make? We make ice cubes, don't we? All the same. When we make sheep, what do we make? Clones, like Dolly the sheep, do you remember her? When we clothe people, we ask what is the latest fashion. Even in the modern trend of hyper-individualism, there is a staggering conformity to how we must all think and talk about it. I'm not sure the world has ever known a society as judgmental as ours. Whereas God, when he freezes water, what does he make? Snowflakes, everyone unique, just as every sheep he's ever made, every ant he's ever made, every fingerprint he's ever made. God seemingly never makes the same thing twice. And he clothes the grass of the field with seeming, with endlessly varied splendor, for he is an awesomely creative creator. And if that's how he truly is, then the closer I get to him, the more I give myself to him, the more I allow my mind to be shaped by his so that I come at things from his angle. It's not that I become a bad version of somebody else. No, I simply become a better version of me. I'll be transformed into the person I was designed to be all along in order to live a life altogether less ordinary, a life in line with his purpose for the universe, but a life that is uniquely mine within it. When the Bible says that worshipping God is true freedom, this is part of what it means when it's saying it. But it all starts with my mind. I can't live that life that is no longer conformed but transformed without my mind being renewed. So are you up, are you up for that, a bit of that, this weekend? For most of us, the best thinking is done corporately. It helps us to talk about what we're thinking about because... Many of us, we get clearer talking through what we're thinking. It makes us clear on what we're not clear on yet, if that makes sense. It helps others too. It helps us to connect the high-level principles to ground level. So there's something wonderfully precious, actually, about coming away like this for a weekend to hear a series of talks in close succession. Many of you have done this for many, many years, and you don't need need me to set and you've experienced in previous weekends the helpfulness of making some time I suspect not primarily for the talks themselves but for that opportunity to think and talk about it with one another the people you're working this out with day to day in life Sundays I don't know what your Sundays are like we don't last very long in church before the kids have a riot something very precious isn't there about being away like this so I wonder if we could detain one another for just a couple more minutes by praying that this weekend would be a helpful weekend in the renewing of our minds 
to enable the transforming of our lives, that we might live lives of worship of the living God who has saved us so wonderfully. Is that all right? Perhaps it's just as we're sitting. Um, I don't know, four or five people could lead us in prayer. So that you could change your view of us. You could change us from being objects of your wrath to being children in whom you take undiluted pleasure. Thank you for your grace in saving us in that way. Amen.